I want to start out this morning with two stories. Two, sm- two stories that uh, I just read this week in 2 Kings. And honestly, like, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know that these stories were intentionally uh, meant to have the same point, but they had the same point for me. And I didn't do like a full Bible study of all of them, but I thought they had a really interesting feature that they both shared. They're very different stories. So in the first story, and these, these are back-to-back in the beginning of 2 Kings. In the first story, uh, the kingdom of Moab is coming against God's people, and they've got an overwhelming army. And I'm just going to give you the very much abridged version because we've got a great chapter to dig into in Isaiah 40. So the kingdom of Moab comes against God pe- God's people, and they've got an overwhelming force. And the army of Israel and Judah together go to confront them. But it must have been some kind of famine or something because on the way they don't encounter the normal watering holes that they would have expected to find. And so they come up to just about the eve of battle and they're all dehydrated. They've got no water, they're weak. It's been days since they've uh, drank any water. And they're crying out to the Lord, did you bring us out here to kill us with dehydration and then just leave us exposed to be slaughtered by the Moabites? So God, through his prophet Elisha, tells them, Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to provide water for you. I want you to dig trenches, dig ditches. And in the morning, it's not going to rain. There's not going to be a heavy dew. You're not going to understand how this happened, but I'm going to fill them up with water. This seems like a really dumb thing to do, right? You're already exhausted. You're already dehydrated. You've got to fight a battle tomorrow. You're going to take all your time now and dig ditches? So they dig these ditches. They go to bed. They've got no really hope or expectation that anything's going to happen with this. But they go to bed, they wake up, and the ditches are full of water. Not only are the ditches full of water, but when the Moabites wake up in the morning, they look across to where their enemies, the Israelites, are encamped, and it looks to them like, all the water looks like blood. So they say, the, the Israelites, the, the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, got into a big fight and they've killed each other and all we've got to do is walk over there and get the spoil. So they're all, you know, half awake like, no way! And then they look at each other and they think, I want to get there first. So they all just start running towards what, the, what is the Israelite camp. Only to find out that the Israelites are not all slaughtered and dead, but are ready for battle. And God works a great victory. And so it's a story about how In a desperate, hopeless situation, God works, but he works through readiness. You see that he works? He he could have just, like, whatever, squashed the Moabite army. But he works through this sort of elaborate mechanism, calling on the Israelites to dig these ditches in order for him to not just take care of their thirst, but through that to defeat their enemies. Very next story in 2 Kings. The prophet Elisha is confronted by uh, the widow of one of the sons of the prophets. We don't know what exactly that means, but this widow confronts Elisha and she says, Listen, my husband's dead, right? She can't go out and get a job. She can't take care of her financial situation. She sold everything she has to sell. She still owes more money, and her creditor is coming to take her two sons away to slavery to pay off the rest of her debts. She says, I need, I need God to do something. He says, what do you have left, what do you have left to sell? She says, I've got nothing left to sell. I've got this little jar. You know, imagine like a little four-inch jar with some oil in it. 
He says, I want you to ask all your neighbors. I want you to get all the buckets, all the pans, all the cups, pitchers, bowls, mugs, anything that, you, that can hold water, get it, borrow it, grab it, use it, and start pouring oil into them. And so she starts pouring oil into them, and the oil just keeps coming out of this little jar that she's got until she fills all of these vessels full of oil. He says, you got any more vessels? That's it. They're all full. The, the oil stops coming out. She's able to sell the oil, pay off her debts, keep her sons, and hopefully refurnish her house and buy some food. But we don't know that part. But same kind of story. Desperate, hopeless circumstance has to have God work in it. But God decides to work through people who are waiting for him to work, and they're waiting in a state of readiness. That, those stories illustrate the goal of this extraordinary chapter that we're in this morning, Isaiah chapter 40. To get us into a state where we're waiting in a condition of readiness for God to work, despite the hopeless or difficult circumstances we're in. As opposed to the condition that the Isaiah 40 is being written to, the, people, the condition that the people are in to whom Isaiah 40 comes who are not in a condition of, of waiting and readiness for God to work. So let's, let's back up and start this morning in Isaiah 40 with a little bit of a brief review of what's been happening in the book of Isaiah. So we're done with Psalm 139 through Advent and the pre-New Year sermon last week. And now we're going to be back into the book of Isaiah. Let me encourage you again now as we go into our second half of Isaiah to reread the book of Isaiah. I encouraged us months ago to read Isaiah twice. Once last fall as we studied Isaiah 1 through 39, and now again as we study chapters 40 through 66. So get back, time to get back into, get back into Isaiah. So verses, uh, chapters 1 to 39 of Isaiah, Isaiah is writing to the kingdom of Judah, which is different than the kingdom of Israel. Israel used to be all one. They had a civil war, and ten tribes went north. They're called Israel. And two tribes went south. They're called Judah. Isaiah is written to the kingdom of Judah, a kingdom that is the, that has the house of David in it. So they have the promises of God attached to them. And, and they should be, therefore, more godly. But they're straying from their Lord. They're straying into idolatry, worshiping other gods. And as always happens when God's people stray into idolatry, they're straying into injustice and exploitation. We saw this in, Psalm, in Isaiah 1-39, to how they're exploiting the land, they're exploiting the poor, the innocents. There's all of this injustice coupled with idolatry. And so for decades, Isaiah is writing to warn them, if you don't repent, you're going to go into exile too. You're going to go into exile too. Everybody for chapters 1-39 to is worried about the, the kingdom of Assyria. But we saw how in chapters 36 to 37, so right before we come to the end of kind of the first big chapter of Isaiah, in chapters 36 to 37, Hezekiah, King Hezekiah's faithfulness to God, he, he repents, he comes to God humbly and in a repentant spirit, and God works through him and completely stops the Assyrian advance against Judah and Jerusalem. But now, as we approach chapter 40, look with me at Isaiah 39, Verse 5. So the, the verse is right before chapter 40 begins. And Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. 
Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house, that which your fathers have stored up till this day, shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord, and some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So this is the context for Isaiah 40. The context is that Judah has been exiled to Babylon. They are exiles in Babylon. That's where Isaiah 40 picks up. Isaiah is writing before that happens, knowing it's going to happen. He's writing to those Jewish exiles in Babylon. Now, let's, let's just pause for a moment and think about what exile means. Because we want to kind of get into the same headspace as the people who are hearing Isaiah 40. What does exile, exile mean? All right, so to understand the, the consequence of exile for the people, let's understand the policy itself for a little bit. So people, the, the world over, us included, derive a tribal, a kind of nationalistic pride, identity, passion for their, themselves as a people, and it's always attached to a place. This is our land. These are our homes, right? There's, there's always this kind of, this kind of zeal that's attached. This is, this is, they're not going to take it from us, right? So the us is defined in part by this is ours, this land. And so it was the policy of empires to, to take people from their homeland and scatter them so they'd break up the communities and remove them from their place. And then we take other people from other places, break them apart, and put some of them in that land so that everybody is dislocated from their homeland. So there's Jewish communities now scattered throughout the, the kingdom, the empire of Babylon. And exile meant for them, first of all, it meant you lost nearly everything, right? I mean, when the, the foreign invaders come in, they take you away. They don't say like, hey, we've got two, two guys in a truck ready to help you relocate. We've got some moving expenses. So it means you lost nearly everything. Think about this, right? You lost your land. You lost your possessions. They weren't like giving you time to pack up. You lost your, your land, your possessions, your network. So like the whole, all the, all the relationships, the community that you've been cultivating, what's attached to that network? Right? So even in this room, right, with all the relationships we've got, you've got opportunities. Right? If a tree goes down in your yard and you think, oh, this looks really nice, I like to have it turned into some bowls. Well, you know a guy who can do something about that, right? If you've got a vitamin deficiency, you think, well, I, I, who do I know that's, that's working in like high-quality you know, uh, supplements? So, so we, we, we have these different opportunities to better ourselves through our network. All these opportunities now are just gone. And with those opportunities also hope. A sense of stability, sense of hope, sense of opportunity. And of course, through the military campaign against your people, you're losing loved ones, right? Probably some of us are dying through this Babylonian campaign. So exile meant you lost nearly everything. It meant, it meant living in a condition of grief and depression is what it meant. It meant you were sad all the time, you were depressed all the time. That's what, that's what it meant for like where you were. Now where are you? Now you are the minority population in a place that's not your home. 
You're a minority. You used to be the majority. It was your place. You were the people. You knew where everything was. This is your land. There was so much that you didn't even think about. Now you're a minority. What does it mean to be a minority? It means that to, have, to live with a sense of powerlessness and weakness, fragility. It means that everywhere you go, you're on the bottom. And the, and the competition is cutthroat. Everything is insecure. When you've got a problem, you take it to the system. They don't care about you. Because what can you do for them? Nothing. Beat it. To be a minority in Babylon, to be a Jew in Babylon, is to, to live with fear, a sense of scarcity, insecurity, suspicion, anxiety. And it also meant, all of these things also meant on an even deeper level now, it meant that, frankly, it brings up a theological crisis. If you've got your Bibles open, look back at Isaiah 36, verse 18 to 20. This is very much... The, the thought process of the people of this age. So in Isaiah 36, verses 18 to 20, let's read. This is the words of the Rabshakeh who's trying to mock and intimidate the people of, of Jerusalem. And he says, Beware lest King Hezekiah mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of the Sepharvim? Have these delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? That the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. To go into exile meant for all these people, our God's better than you, better than your God. Our God beats your God. Your God and his promises of protection and security and safety are bunk. And for most Israelites, the presence of God was very strongly associated with the land, the temple, the worship of God's people, the presence of the king. And to be removed from that is going to create a huge theological crisis for them. Are his promises true? Can we trust him? Is God defeated? Are we lost? Can he see us? Is he going to do right by his word to us? These are the questions that Isaiah 40 implies. In fact, it states this. Look with me at Isaiah 40, verse 27. This question that we're going to read, these questions are really the, the emotional context for Isaiah 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, Isaiah 40, 27, Why do you say and speak, O Israel, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Can he see me? Does he care? That's what they're asking. Can he see me? Does he care? Which are just some of the most elemental questions that all of us have that lead us to those Eeyore moments. No, he doesn't see us. He doesn't care about us. I think this is very applicable and pertinent to the condition of American Christians right now. Right? We know that many American Christians have gotten comfortable over the last hundred years to the extent where they're, they're confusing American prosperity as if it were some kind of fulfillment of biblical promises. And many mistakenly identify their material good with God's blessing, which is exactly the situation that Judah was in. Like they're exploiting people and being unjust, but you know what that means for the top 10% is they're doing great. 
and for their understanding of like, how could God be mad? Like Isaiah's going, God's mad at you guys. And they're like, how is God mad at us? Like, have you seen my new car? I just paid off my second home. I mean, I just got a bump at work. I mean, how is God mad? I think we're doing fine. I think you just have a mental problem. And so for us as recent generations seem to grow less interested in religion and not more, and recent political decisions, and I'm talking recent in the last couple of decades, not just the last couple of months. But as recent political decisions are growing less favorable to religion and not more, as recent cultural trends grow less hospitable to religion and not more, it's very natural then for, for people in that situation to feel like where we were is being taken from us. Like we're not moving, we're not, we're not having to be loaded up into a van, but we feel like we're going into exile from what we knew. What we knew is lost, and it, it can seem like God is failing to deliver on the expectations that we had for Him. And we can be saying the same thing that they're saying in Isaiah 40. Is God defeated? I thought we were just going to march to Zion and take over everything from here. Are we lost? Can He see? Does He care? It's the same Elemental questions. And now, let's look at Isaiah 40, verse 1. Enter Isaiah 40, verse 1. And what does it say? What's the message? Be comforted. Comfort, comfort my people, says the Lord your God. The message, this is a little tone deaf, isn't it? Hey, you haven't had any legislative decisions go your way in decades. Hey, the culture thinks you're all fools. Hey, the population of Christians is shrinking. Be comforted. I've got good news for you. Comfort has come. What message of comfort can there be for people in exile? Let's read what he says here. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's a message of forgiveness. Verse 3, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Verse 5, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Verse 9, Go up onto a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, here's the good news, Behold your God. Behold your Lord, God comes with might and His arm rules for Him. His reward is with Him, His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs in His arms and He will carry them in His bosom and gently lead those that are with young. The message is of forgiveness and of the return of God to his people, Judah. God is going to dwell with his people again. Understand what this means in the biblical world. We're talking about the restoration of Eden, God with his people, the opposite of exile. They're in exile and he's promising them Eden. Okay. But talk is cheap. I mean, prophets get kind of paid or not paid to talk. So the talk is cheap. Why should they believe? Why should, in exile, they believe this message of good news and take comfort? 
Now let's look at verses 6 to 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, and the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Why should they take comfort? Because the word of the Lord is going to stand forever. All right, but this just pushes the, kicks the can down the, the line a little bit. And, and I want you to understand, as we're going to see, this is a very skeptical audience, right? Their, their position is God does not see me. God does not care about me. So, so this message of comfort and this message of good news, they're like, why should we believe you? And he says, because the word of the Lord stands forever. But on what basis are you making a claim about the word of the Lord? Why should the word of the Lord be different than the word of Rabshakeh? The word of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, who, was, who was died a couple years ago, right? Like, why should the word of the Lord be any different? You know, in the biblical kind of uh, categories, word is like name, meaning it, it really encapsulates a person's character, right? So they always talk about the name of the Lord. It's the same thing as saying like, well, that, that business has a good name. That person has a good name. They have a good reputation. They have the right kind of character and they have the ability to keep their word, right? Is he, does he keep his word? Is he reliable? Does he have the character to follow through and the ability to do what he says he's going to do? So to talk about the word of the Lord is the same thing as talking about who is the Lord. What kind of person is this? And so now let's pick up reading in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12. This is really the bulk of this chapter is answering the question, what kind of person is this God who gives us this word of comfort? And as we read it, I just want you to think in each section, what is the, what is the point of this section? I'm not, we're not going to spend a lot of time on here, but we're going to read through this. Who has measured... Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Those are all rhetorical questions. What's the answer? Nobody, right? Nobody's taught him anything. Who, who, In verse 12, who created everything so exactly they measured the mountains out? Who did that? He did that. So the emphasis here is on the wisdom of God, how he does everything he does exactly right. Verse 15, listen, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, are counted as the dust on scales. (sighs) Right? What do you do with the dust on? That's it. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. What does that mean? It means look inside of all the glory of the nations. Open up that box, and what do you see inside? What's in there? Say it. Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. God is so much greater than the nations that you're so scared of right now. You're in Babylon. Oh, mighty Babylon. 
It's dust on the scales for him. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol? The, the gods of Babylon? Okay. A craftsman casts it. A goldsmith overlays it with gold, casts it with silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up his idol so it doesn't wobble. The point of these verses, God is incomparably greater than the gods that supposedly made these nations you're so afraid of so great. They say, oh, we're so great. Look at our gods. And he's like, the gods that wobble? Verse 21, do you not know? Again, notice the, the, the thick density of rhetorical questions. Do you not know? Of course you know. Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. He who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Now notice in verse 24, the same language as in verse 7. Verse 7 says, The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Verse 24, Scarcely are the princes... And the rulers planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. He's saying, you know these great kings that you have to bow before, these great rulers that you live in terror of. He says, they're like dandelions in your yard. You look out your window, you say, oh, there's dandelions. You look out your window the next day, oh, there's no dandelions. That's what they are. They're nothing. So verse 25 to 26 comes back to the emphasis at the beginning of this section, rehashing some of the questions here. He says, to whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings them out, brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The point of verses 12 to 26, I think, is pretty clear. That God is incomparably greater than. Who is God relative to all things? Creation, nations, other gods, all glories, all kings. He's greater than. He's so much greater than. Therefore, the word of the Lord is going to stand. He's going to keep his word. And therefore, now we come finally to the the real nub of this for God's people. And therefore we come to verse 27, Israel's complaint. My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is disregarded. And verse 28 and 29, now bring verses 12 to 26, all that stuff about God, it brings it to apply it to their theological crisis. And he says, have you not known of course they know. Have you not heard? Of course they've heard. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Here's the point he's making. God is able to get you what you need wherever you are. God is able to get you the ends of the earth. He created the ends of the earth. Oh, you've been taken really far away. He's not going to get weary. He's not going to quit on that 
trek to reach you with what you need where you are. God is able to get you whatever you need wherever you are. Are you in exile? Okay, verse 30. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Sometimes we feel like, can God see me? Does he care about me? Isaiah is just reminding them. They know all this stuff. They've heard all these stories. So he's reminding them, how could you be hidden from him? How could he ever be kept from doing good to you? Who's going to stop him? How's how's that going to work? Haven't you heard who he is? So where you are, he's going to get you what you need. If you're in Babylon, if you're in the other side of the Babylonian Empire, wherever you are, he can get you what you need, even when you're in exile. We're so, we're so worried, Christians are so worried about what's going to happen to Christianity in America. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to be in 30, 40, 50 years? God is going to be able to get us what we need where we are, wherever that is. The faith, the good news. Isaiah 40 is calling us to put our faith in the message of comfort, the message of good news. That's rooted in what we think of the word of the Lord. And that's rooted in who we think God is. And all these rhetorical questions seem to mean that his readers, he he assumes they know all these things. They already know the scriptures that tell about this God. How much more so do we know the character of this God? How much more so do you and I know the character and the reliability of this God? Because we have met Jesus, who is described as the Word of God. Jesus is the Word of God that stands forever. He embodies God's reliability. Right? He says, you know how through the whole Old Testament, God's saying, trust me, trust me, I'm reliable, I'll come through for you? Hey, I did! That's what Jesus is saying. He shows up on the world scene and says, you ordered it, God promised it, He clicked by, Delivered. Fulfilled. It's here. Jesus embodies God's reliability. He is the word of God that's never going to fail. Throughout the Old Testament, the word of God cannot fail. Jesus is like, I'm here. I didn't fail. And he is the God who will not grow weary. In fact, even more so than this, we see in miniature the message of Isaiah 40 in the end of Jesus' Jesus' story in the Gospels. In John 15 and 16, Jesus' final scene with his disciples before he goes to the cross. And in there he says, guys, I will be in you. My spirit, my, my comfort, the comforter, the helper is going to come to you and my word is going to be in you. And he says, the comforter Comfort my people. Comfort, Isaiah 40 says. He says the comfort is the name of the Spirit of Jesus. The comforter, the helper is going to come to you. And what is he going to do? What is he going to give you? He's going to give you comfort. He's going to give you peace. He's going to give you help. He's going to give you energy. He's going to give you power. He's going to give you fruitfulness. He's going to give you what you need wherever you go. It's the same message. 
So what should we do with all this? Let's look one last time here in Isaiah 40, verse 31. But those who wait for the Lord. Those who wait for the Lord. So we should wait. I think there's three things that we need to, we need to unpack what this means a little bit. And I think there's three things that in this context wait means. And uh, I'm, I'm terrible at all three of these things. So, three things that I'm really bad at. The first is uh, to ask God. Like, so, so you're waiting for something from God. You've asked Him, right? You're asking God for strength, for help, for comfort. What do you need strength for right now in your life? I'm going to ask a kind of dumb question, though. Have you asked God for that? Have you asked God for strength? Right? You've got situations in your life. Like I said, I need comfort in that situation. Here's kind of a dumb question. Have I asked God for it? God, I could, man, I really need some help in this situation. Have you asked God for the help? Okay, the, the premise for waiting on God is that you've asked Him for the thing that you need. But no joke, right? You didn't ask. I don't ask. I need all this help. I need all this strength. We don't ask. That's, a, that's how this starts. The second thing, ask, and then don't do anything. Right? It's not waiting on Him if we're trying to take care of it ourselves. These things go along really well in my life. I think... I need some strength. I'm going to go get strength. God's just cut right out of the whole program. It's not waiting for Him if we're doing what we think we need in our own strength, following not His ways, the world's ways, right? And this really, this really excavates a deep question for us in particular, although it's something that the exiles in Babylon faced as well. And it's this Are we exiles or are we at home? Are we exiles or are we at home? Have we gotten comfortable here? Or are we waiting for comfort from God? Okay, so a lot of Jews went into Babylonian exile. Right? The book of uh, Esther is, is premised on the presence of these kind of Jews. And they just said, hey, our God failed. This is uncomfortable. I'm done being a Jew. And they just completely hid all their Jewishness. Right? They got rid of all the gear that was Jewish looking. They tried to just completely change themselves, change their names, stop going to worship, stop hanging around with other Jews. And you know what? It was great. They were super comfortable. Right? Because if you got the Jewish guy and the guy who looks kind of Jewish, but he's not a Jew, clearly he's not a Jew, who gets the promotion at work in Babylon? The Jewish guy who's completely gotten rid of his Jewish identity, right? The Jewish guy who can go along with you to the temple for lunch and enjoy some wine and some meat that was sacrificed to the, those other gods. That's the guy who, you know, years later when your families are camping, you go, you're a Jew, really? That's the, that's the, he's comfortable. That person's comfortable in Babylon. They got comfort, but they didn't get the Lord's comfort. So they didn't get any comfort, Have we gotten comfortable or are we looking to him for comfort? Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, 
to Roman citizens. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from there we await a Savior, King Jesus. Jesus himself, and I was thinking about this in relation to this subject. Remember when he says to his disciples, he says, if anybody wants to be my disciple, let him take up his cross and follow me. He says, because what should it profit a person to gain the whole world but lose your soul? The person who wants to gain the whole world is looking to the world and looking to themselves to get to be made comfortable without reference to God. And that is a temptation for every one of us. In fact, probably, to be more honest, it's all of our default setting. And what Isaiah is doing is calling us out of seeking comfort in the world on our own terms and to wait for the comfort and the strength and the help of God. Ask God. Don't try to do it yourself. And then the last thing is be ready. This is actually what waiting is. Waiting is... Being ready. Waiting is digging the trench. Waiting is collecting all the cups and mugs and bowls and getting ready for God to work. Think about the story of Daniel. Right? What's Daniel known for? Every day, going up on his balcony to say his prayers in the direction of Jerusalem, he's so faithful, he's so staying ready that his enemies can use that to entrap him and get him thrown into the lion's den. So what does it mean for us to be ready for God to work? I think it means staying faithful to the commands. The commands. You know, as soon as Christians go into the culture, into into any culture, there's going to be pressure on them, specifically in terms of sexual ethics and money, to jettison the biblical commands and try to look just like the world. So staying faithful to the commands, to the practices of God's people, right? Showing up to worship. You don't get any points for this anymore at work, right? Maybe a hundred years ago, your great-grandparents could be, you know, a deacon or a trustee or an usher at the church. And, well, that's fine. You come on in, right? It was none of that anymore. You don't come to church anymore. What, you, what do you have? What's the big problem? you got an extra morning. Okay, so we stay faithful to the practices of God's people and the disciplines of God's people. Reading, praying, growing. Why? So that when God acts, we see it. We get to see it. And we get to rejoice. And we get to reap. We get to reap. Because we're ready for when God works. Friends, God has not failed. He's not going to fail. He doesn't fail. And so you and I, even though we seem like maybe we're heading into exile, we're not as fragile as we look. And we, have, we're not, we haven't lost as much as we think we've lost. Because we've got God. And God is able to get us what we need, wherever we are, wherever we go. So wait for him. Wait for him and be ready. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word and we thank you for the the promise in it, the hope of comfort, the, the message of good news, and the promise that you will give strength, you will give help, 
You can give that comfort to us no matter where we are. Even when sometimes it feels like we are very distant from you. When it seems like our, our situation, like you have nothing to do with it. Yet even there, in grief, in sorrow, in depression, in fragility, instability, distress, you can get us what we need. And so, Lord, right now we ask, because we all need this, we ask for the strength, for the faith, to wait for you. And we ask, Lord, that you would work, that you would, that you would work. Help us to trust in the reliability of your word and your, and your character that we meet in Jesus Christ and that we see evidenced most plainly and clearly on the cross and in the resurrection. And as now we turn our hearts to celebrate that, and as we sing about the Word of God that stands above all other words, let us see here in the table that promise, that truth. You are a reliable God. And we can trust you. And when you say take comfort, when you say come get strength, it's good. So we ask that you would do this work in us, Lord, that the word of the Lord would dwell in us richly now. In Jesus' name, amen.